Um, a lot of robust conversation happening. We love that. Love that. Uh, happy Mother's Day, everybody. I'm so glad to share it with you guys. Um, yeah. Uh, just love it when Dave does announcements, you know? It's just the, the segues are always right on, you know? Dave could connect a, an auto show with a tulip field, you know? Just whew, it's connecting so, so smooth, so great. Well, hey, if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. We use those each and every Sunday. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm going to be teaching from the Scriptures today. And, um, yeah, uh, when you get it, open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're actually going to be working from the Gospel of Mark today. Gospel of Mark today, Mark chapter 8. So there's four Gospels in the Bible. They start about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order. Um, there's no shame in using the table of contents if you need to find Mark. And when you get there, find the big number eight. That's where we're going to be working from. Um, now, if you've been tracking with us this year as a church, you may be like, wait a sec. Why am I opening up to the Gospel of Mark? We have been working through the Gospel of John as a community over the course of this year. We started that at the beginning of the year. Why are we in Mark today? Um, well, it's because of what my, my week looked like. So this week, I had the opportunity uh, to go to, there's a, a conference in town that uh, is uh, all about kind of gathering pastors uh, to really help them dial down and go back to the tools they learned in seminary, seminary with regards to their preaching and their teaching, their preaching and their teaching. And part of that, so I spent most of my week doing that, and part of that is to prepare two sermons to give, uh, to kind of present before other pastors. Kind of intimidating. And I said, Dave, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a big lift to do two sermons in one week. Is there any way I could use one of those instead of doing a third in the, the Gospel of John? And he graciously said, oh yeah, right, go for it. Let's do some Mark. So... So that's why we're here in Mark. But uh, Mark is another gospel account, and it's not dissimilar or completely detached from the gospel of John. Um, and so I had two passages here in Mark, and I picked the one that was closely, most closely aligned with what we've been working through as we've been looking at Jesus and looking at what's going on. Um, and I've entitled this sermon, um, Eyes Wide Open. Eyes wide open. Uh, because here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is all about helping his disciples discover what it means to follow him with eyes wide open. If you were in your cohorts this week and you were unpacking the, the text for this Sunday, you, were, you, you got to see this a little bit. Jesus is trying to help them figure out what it means to follow him with their eyes wide open. And that's not dissimilar from what we have been doing in the Gospel of John. You see, in chapter 3 in John, Jesus had this discussion with this religious leader, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus's big question is trying to figure out who this person is in front of him and what it would mean to follow him. And so what does it actually mean to follow Jesus, what Nicodemus is wrestling with? And then in chapter 4, we see Jesus went into the, the Samaritan town. and Well, he went out to the well and had an encounter with the Samaritan woman, and she goes to the town. And then this whole town, maybe not the whole town, but a lot of the town comes out and confesses, this is the savior of the world. But it's unclear, like, what does life look like next for these Samaritans? Like, what did it actually look like to follow Jesus for them moving forward? They became convinced that Jesus was the savior of the world, but, but how did that actually change their lives? How did it change their lives? Um, have you ever tried to answer the question of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What would be your answer to that question? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I, I, I see people answer this a, a lot of time, and what I tend to see happen is people either oversimplify it or overcomplicate it. There's kind of two kind of ends that we can fall into here, oversimplifying it and overcomplicating it. I don't often encounter just deep, uh, somewhat concise answers to this question, uh, which means that Jesus has some confused followers they don't exactly know what it means to follow him. And, and if they're confused on what it means to follow him, then outsiders who come into contact with them are going to have a really difficult time picking up who this Jesus is and what it actually means to follow him as well. I mean, as I go out in Seattle and, and I talk to people who aren't following Jesus, you could say outsiders, about Jesus, I haven't found someone that doesn't like Jesus. I just find people who don't really know who Jesus was and, and don't really know exactly what it means to follow him. 
This is kind of a callback to our series in John, even. What exactly do you think I believe is what we entitled that series? What exactly does it mean to follow Jesus? What, what exactly is it? Perhaps you're an outsider here today. Uh, perhaps that's you. You're looking into Christianity from the outside. Uh, and perhaps you've been considering Jesus a bit already. Um, you've been looking at him, his, looking at his people. That's us, uh, his message, his life, his death, his, his book even. You've been reading this a little bit. And you're curious, like, what does it actually mean to follow him? This passage in Mark is for you. But... Faithful communication of Jesus and his message to outsiders isn't the only thing that is at stake here in, in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 8. It even has something for those of us who would say we're insiders. If, if we're unclear on how to follow Jesus, what will we do when the pressures of life really start to weigh in on us? Like, like when we really feel like, we're, we've been, like the weight of the world is, is coming down, when it's just pressure. When we're under, the, under it, we just feel like our back is against a wall. This has been me the past couple of weeks. I, uh, I lost my credit card two weeks ago, but I've just been so busy doing so many things I haven't had the time to actually like call the bank and do that nonsense. You know, I picked up a screw in my car tire a couple weeks ago, still haven't gotten it fixed. You know, I'm just praying to the Lord that he gets me to where I need to be. You know, like, like <laughs> I'm taking my wife to the airport later today, so be, please be praying. Um, But if we aren't really clear on what it means to follow Jesus, we can do one of two things here. We'll either conclude that we need to do more religious things when, it, when we really feel like we're pushed up against a wall. I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to listen to more Christian content. I need to go to church more. I need to serve more. I need to, I need to do more things. Or we can jump out of different escape hatches that we have. Uh, these could be vices that we think lead to more life, but they end up just crushing us all the more. Um, these could be just even distractions in our life. We'll, we'll, we'll think things like, I need, I need more leisure in my life. I need more vacation. But we have more leisure and vacation than all humans in all of human history. <laughs> it's like, is that really what, what we need? I, I need video games to feed a sense of accomplishment. I need more entertainment and, or more experiences to distract. The list could go on and on and on. That's to say that when we're unclear on what it actually means to follow Jesus, we can, we can become overly religious or irreligious. And actually what I find is it's a little more complicated than that. We actually become a, a muddled mixture of the two, kind of self-refuting. We like become religious in some ways, but then irreligious in some other ways because we're just unclear on what it means to follow Jesus. It's this strange mixture. We can be quite, we, we're, we're really good at, Deceiving ourselves sometimes. Just. But what if following Jesus wasn't about religion? What if it wasn't about irreligion? That's why we've come to Mark. We're, we're going to go from verse 11. We're going to start in verse 11. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter in 8. We're going to look at how each one of these passages piece together. Um, because Mark here is trying to illuminate for us exactly what it is to follow Jesus. And, and he's doing that recounting exactly how Jesus took his 12 disciples through a process of making more clear what it meant to actually follow him. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through this uh, portion of Scripture. We're just going to see how these sections relate to us. That's what we're, we're going to do first. Um, then we're going to really look at how uh, these sections work together to tell us who Jesus is and what he's up to. Kind of more of the conceptual um, and then we're going to really major on practical in the end. Like, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? I really hope that we can walk away today just with some real, uh, a good answer of, well, this is what it means to follow Jesus. So let's start in, in verse 11 here. I'll set the scene for you. Um, Jesus and his disciples are up in north Israel. That's around Galilee. Uh, that's where Jesus spent most of his time, actually, when he wasn't traveling down to Jerusalem to go to the festivals. Like in John, we see him go down to Jerusalem three times to go Passover three times. Um, and when he goes down to Jerusalem and up to Galilee, sometimes he passes through Samaria. That's where we were the last couple of weeks. But, but now he's back up north in Galilee. He's back north in Galilee in a district near the Lake of Galilee because what he'd often do is he'd be around the Lake of Galilee. He'd just kind of like boat hop, you know, like from place to place to place and get his gospel message out. Uh, so um, he's up there in this region called Dalmanutha. So let's pick it up with me in verse 11. Now the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that's Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. 
Sighing deeply in his spirit. Can you just see this, Jesus? <sighs> Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. So he's, he's boat hopping around the, the northern shores of Galilee. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you don't have any bread? He's saying, guys, I'm, I obviously just gave you a metaphor. Why can't you pick this up? Don't you understand or comprehend? Don't you have, or do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12. When I broke the, the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand? Don't you understand yet? That word yet is so important. He says, why are you worried about bread? I can just make that on demand. Obviously talking in metaphor here. So this is very interesting, okay? So, so Jesus makes this comment about leaven, to, about leaven, which is also known as yeast, for those of us in the 21st century. I, I looked it up, don't worry. So what exactly is leaven? I don't want to get this wrong for people. It's actually yeast. And he's telling the disciples to watch out for this yeasty teaching of <laughs> of the Pharisees and of Herod to keep it out of their doughy minds. That's probably the best way to think of it, okay? Jesus knew that brains were doughy, I suppose, you know? Just keep that yeast out of your doughy brain. And this, and it concludes with him asking a bunch of questions of these guys, kind of in terms of, re, like, rebuke. And it ends, but it doesn't resolve. And, then, and he, Jesus seems upset. And it's hard to get on board with Jesus being upset. It's like, dude... You picked a bunch of unlearned fishermen <laughs> to be your followers. Like, they're not going to be able to move really quickly from the physical to the spiritual like this, you know? But, but, but the, this one rebuke, this one question he asked, do you have eyes and, and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? This comes from the prophets of Jeremiah. It's there. It's also in the prophet of Ezekiel. So what happens after this boat squabble? It doesn't really resolve. Now they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he, that's Jesus, sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. I said, this is, this is strange. The boat, squabble, the, the boat squabble here, I've started saying squabble instead of disagreement because we watch this Australian kid show in my house. So that's what they say in Australia. Squabble. The squabbling. After this squabble on what? The disciples' spiritual sight, there is an encounter with a blind man. Any coincidence? Perhaps. But the fact that Mark is including it here at this point suggests not. And what else is strange is the nature of this miracle. We have a two-stage healing here. What's going on? Nowhere else in any of the other miracles that we see Jesus do is there a part one and a part two. He just heals someone and heals them completely. But here we have a part one and then a part two. What's more that's strange is they bring this guy out of the village. Like they lead this blind man away from other people. It's like, what, are they going to steal this guy's money? What are they doing? <laughs> they bring him outside of the village. There's something here that Jesus wants to do in this healing, in this healing miracle it's just for the disciples to see. It's just for them to see. They, they bring him out of the village. Now, he's using this miracle to illustrate something for the disciples then. For us, those of us who are following Jesus. You see, this is, this is always true of Jesus' miracles when you come across him in the gospel accounts. They both heal people. He's usually motivated by, by compassion and love for the person who's, who's ailing and, and, and blind or deaf or mute or demon-possessed or, or whatever. But he's also primarily, and he says this in, in the Gospels, I'm, I came here to preach the good news of the kingdom of God coming. That's the reason for why I've come. And in fact, it's his healing ministry that will endanger 
the preaching ministry. Like over and over again, you see the crowds come for healing and Jesus is like, I need to get out of here because I didn't actually come to heal people. I actually came to preach the gospel. So I have to leave this really good ministry that can have a lot of productivity and, and make a lot of headway in, but I'm, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to do this. This is what people want. This is what people need. And so even in, in his healing ministries, what he's doing in, in all of his miracles, he's using them as a way to tell us something about the kingdom of God and what it means to participate in it. So think back uh, to John chapter 2 when we discussed the, the wedding feast at, at Cana. Jesus did a miracle there. He turned water into wine, but he didn't just turn water into wine. He, he turned water into wine in what? Jewish purification jars to make a point about what he's up to, how he's, how he's the next step for advancing Jewish purification in the world. And we talked about that at length. The miracles he does... He does in order to proclaim something about his preached message. They're illustrations. They're also done out of, out of compassion, and, and, and people found life because of them. So, Jesus dealt with this, this blind man to give the disciples a more clear picture of themselves. That's what I'm suggesting here. A more clear picture of themselves. He's healing this man in order to help and enable the disciples to see where they were at in their following of Jesus saying they were somewhat blind. There are many Christians who seem to be in the first stage, like after the first stage of healing comes, who, who are, they, they say, yes, I, I see, but I see as men, as trees walking around. It's really difficult to describe this man, isn't it? Is, can he see? Not really. He thinks people are trees. Is he blind? Well, not really. He's really neither one thing or the other. He's in this strange in-between ground. And so we have Jesus questioning the spiritual eyes of the disciples, okay? This is, the, this is what is the, the question now is, okay, so where are the disciples then? What stage in this process of sight of Jesus are they? Are they before stage one? Are they after stage one? Are they after stage two? Where exactly do these disciples land? And then we have a conversation. We have a conversation. But the conversation is surprising. Because you know what? Jesus sets this up. We have this fight about spiritual sight on the boat, and then we get off the boat, and we get this man, and we bring him out of town, and we have this kind of two-stage healing process. And you would think that it's right there that Jesus kind of steps out and is like, okay, these are the stages of spiritual sight, and this is where you are at, and, and let's, this is how you get from one stage to the other. But he doesn't. What does he do? It's in verse 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is 25 miles north. Jesus goes on a walking tour. Okay, so, so we have this, this squabble on the boat, this time in the village, healing the man. Now we're on a walking tour, 25 miles north, going from village to village to village. Jesus is taking his sweet time and actually revealing to these disciples what they need to see. Following Jesus, learning what it means to follow Jesus, is often a process. Often, it's, it's not a boom like the, It's a process. It's a process. So, so this is what's going on. So they're on this walking journey up here. But on the road in between towns, Jesus is going to pick up the subject of their spiritual sight once more. Specifically, he's going he's to test it in such a way that it's made plain to them. And he does so by way of a conversation that works around a particular question. And that question goes like, this. Who do you say that I am? Now, we preached through Mark a couple years ago, um, and we actually entitled that whole sermon series, The Most Important Question Ever Asked. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see different people answering the question, who is Jesus, in different ways. And we said the most important question ever asked is actually comes from Jesus asking the, the, those who are, are looking to him and following him, or beginning to follow him, or beginning to consider who he is, who do you say that I am? The whole book of Mark centers around this question. This question. It's the most important question ever asked. And so let, let's read it. So this is the central nugget of Mark. The book of Mark kind of hinges on this chapter. So Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked him, but you, 
Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he, that's Jesus, strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Peter got it right. He says, You are the Messiah. Some translations will say, The Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, like Jesus Christ. Christ is, it's the, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Messiah, Christos. You are the Messiah. He gets it right. This account is also in Matthew chapter 16. And it's at this point, Peter, or Jesus will turn to Peter and say, Well done, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has revealed this to you, who's in heaven. Great job, Peter. He, he got it right. So, phew. So even though the disciples misunderstand sometimes, they can still see. They, they have been illuminated by the Father. They do see. They do know who Jesus is. We can rest assured now. Good. Phew. Now, the conversation continues. It goes like this in verse 31. Then he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he, that's Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Oof. Icarus has flown too high, right? He was up there. He was getting it right, but his wings have melted and he's fallen back down to earth. Maybe even under the earth, actually. Jesus called him Satan. Yikes. What happened? What happened? Well, Peter had the right label for Jesus, but he had the wrong content. Somewhat similar. It's not a one-for-one comparison here, but somewhat similar if you were to look at Mount Rainier and say, that is an amazing mountain. What is it really? Anybody know what Mount Rainier really is? Volcano. It's something else entirely. It's a volcano. Peter got in the label of the Messiah, right? But the content all, all wrong. Is he, along with the rest of the disciples, are they just seeing Jesus walking as a tree then? Do they have only partial sight? You better believe it. The Father has revealed something to Peter. But he's not seen fully. He doesn't see what Christ came to do fully. Why? Because he has a misunderstanding of the identity and the work of Messiah. Of Messiah. And this is of, of the Christ. And it's this misunderstanding, misunderstanding of the identity and the work of the Christ that's actually run rampant in the church ever since. For 2,000 years. We've been getting it wrong in big ways for 2,000 years. So, so, so let's move to that now. The identity, the work of Christ. Because after Peter's confession, you were the Messiah, what did Jesus do? He began to teach them, it says. This is the first time. He held nothing back, it says. He began to teach them about the content of his future ministry and what it was going to look like. He began to teach them this. He's actually going to teach them two more times in these next two chapters that the content of what the Messiah was, someone that's going to suffer, be rejected by the religious leaders, die. This is the substance of the Messiah. Jesus says, oh, this is, you're using the right title. Okay, here's the substance, Peter. That it's necessary for the Son of Man to be persecuted, suffer, and die. Now, Jesus used this word, this phrase, Son of Man. He used this of himself. Did you notice the redirect there? He said, you use the word Messiah, I'm going to use the word Son of Man. Because the word Messiah had become so politicized, so governmental. It's got so closely tied to the king that would rule Israel. This was, this was the person that was good, from the Hebrew scriptures that was going to come, and, and it was interpreted by the Jewish Israel of the first century. This person would come and show up in power, in charismatic ways. This person would unite all of the leadership of Israel, and all the leadership of Israel would put their weight behind him, and, and they, he would be able to recruit an army, and he would be able to reinstate the kingdom of Israel, the promised land once again. This is Messiah. And this is the Messiah that Peter had in mind when he uses the word. 
And this is why Peter pulls Jesus aside. Can you imagine? Whoa, Jesus, you're messing up on what the Messiah is here. <laughs> Says Jesus rebuked, or Peter is rebuking Jesus. Whoa, Jesus, this is actually what Messiah is. You're teaching about suffering and death. And, no, this is what Messiah is. The Messiah will suffer, Jesus says. I'm going to die. And in fact, please don't use that title of me because it's just confusing people as to what my work really is here on earth. Messiah comes from the, the Hebrew word anointed one, it referred to the king. That's why it's very political and governmental in nature. Um, oil, like a quart of it at least, was poured on top of the king's head when they would assume the throne. Can you imagine if we did that to King Charles last week? I don't think he'd like it. But it would anoint this, this person who would become king. And Jesus is saying, your notion of Messiah, I don't know if he exactly has this mind, but, but we, there's this Old Testament foundation. We have a category for a king who's anointed, yet doesn't rule, just suffers for a while. It's King David. He's anointed king awkwardly. Sam, prophet, Samuel the prophet does this. Anoints David king while Saul's still on the throne. And so Saul actually runs after David, tries to kill him, persecute him. Jesus' ministry is to be more like David running away from his enemies in the wilderness. And when he does come close to his enemies, love them. Spare them. This is what Messiah is. This is what Messiah is. This is the notion of Messiah that comes from God. The, the notion of Messiah that, that comes from Satan, it doesn't care about what God's concerned about, only with what humans are concerned about. See that here? You, you are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. What is he saying? He's saying, Peter, Peter, you've let that Pharisee leaven get all up in your dough. You're thinking about Messiah just like the Pharisees, just like Herod is thinking about it. This is bad spiritual sight. Peter wasn't seeing the things that God was concerned with. He was only seeing that which humans are concerned with. Now, he made this correct confession. He's no longer fully blind, but does he really see? No. He, along with all of Israel, was just looking forward to what God was going to do for him through the Messiah. You see, someone can think they're seeing Jesus, in fact, when they actually aren't, when when in fact they have just been kind of healed. They might confess God as God and Jesus as Messiah or as Christ, but deep down in their motivations, they're actually just like Peter here. Just hoping that God's going to do certain things for them. You know what I think Peter is stoked about? I can't wait to be one of the henchmen of the Messiah. I think that's what Peter is stoked about. You see, someone can think they're seeing Jesus. People can come to Jesus for a variety of reasons that that are good. We can look to Jesus and try to come to him because we want something from him. They want a value system for how to navigate life. We want to to be assured that that we're loved and and valued. We, We want to go to Jesus because we want meaningful relationships, maybe even a spouse one day. We want a community to raise our children in that'll teach us good values. I want to be known for the volunteerism that's attached to Jesus and his people. Now, these aren't bad things. But coming to Jesus for them doesn't actually indicate full sight. Now, now don't get me wrong. Like I said, they're good things. The gospel, his gospel message produces and works these things. It does deliver them to us. But they can also just be human concerns, can't they? They can be. You may start here, but Jesus wants you to fully open your eyes. And so the question that Mark is leaving us here in chapter 8 with is one of personal examination that all of us should ask ourselves far more often than we do. How do you view Jesus? Do you conceive of Jesus as someone who will support and take you where you want to go? That will give you the things that you want out of life? Or do you view Jesus as someone who's taking you where he's going? It's, it's very simple in a sense. Which, which is it? Is, is Jesus a means to your ends 
Or are you content to let him employ you as a means to his ends? This is the question Mark wants us to wrestle with. Which is it? Your concerns or his concerns? Honestly, which is it? Is, is the Christ you're, you're conceiving of really just a means to a happy, healthy, and contented life? Or have you resolved that you are his means to unleash the life that he wants to pour out on this world? Which is it? Now, everyone starts spiritually blind. Like the, and like the, the, like the blind man here, like the disciples, we experience some partial spiritual sight when we come to Jesus. Almost everybody initially starts taking steps towards Jesus in the hopes that he can fix something that's going wrong in their life. But eventually, eventually there's a transition that takes place in the life of the Christian that goes like this. Even my initial pursuit of Jesus was for me and my human concerns, not him and God's concerns. Sometimes this is a two-step process, like the healing miracle. Sometimes, separated by years. Uh, For me, it was dealing with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. I felt extremely bad about the things I did. It's part of my general bend and disposition. Like when I mess up, I'm really hard hard on myself. Way harder on myself than many of you here in this room. I'm really hard on myself. And initially, I had a real problem with telling the truth. Middle school, high school, even in the first year of college. I mean, bordering on pathological lying kind of stuff. And I came to Jesus initially because I wanted to be relieved of that guilt and shame, of that guilty conscience. I needed something from him. Now, even that can sound like following Jesus with your eyes wide open. I was confessing my sin. It was for me. It was making me feel better. I was still using Christ as a means to my end to feel good about myself again. You see that? It it looks like fully, fully accepting the gospel, but it's not. Not at all. It's partial sight. So what is it for you? This can be a very subtle deception, can't it? What is it for you? Have you come to Jesus to feel loved and accepted? to get that from him for community and relationships, to get those from him for a a, a robust ethic for how to live life, to get that from him for meaning and purpose even in life, to get that from him? What is it for you? What was it for you? Are you still there? Uh, If you're feeling the conviction, oh no, I've only been using the Messiah to get something from him. Oh no, don't fret. What you actually need to do is rejoice. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Rejoice? This is pretty bad. Jesus just called Peter Satan. Rejoice? You need to rejoice because Jesus has already been working in your life to give you partial sight. And that's amazing. He's already begun to draw you to himself, to work through your situations, to work through even your own desires, to entertain the fact that he might be the king of this world that can give it to you. He's just brought you to the place to say, I'm not ruling kind of in full quite yet. I'm not going to give you all of those blessings necessarily quite yet. I'm here to be the savior of the, the world. I'm here to suffer. I came here to die. But you're right where you need to be. I've started to work and open your eyes, give you vision. He knows, it doesn't surprise Jesus, he knows at first that people follow him to get things for themselves. He knows that. He's not bothered by it. He did it. He empowered you to, to, to look to him and to begin to do that. But once you gain the conviction that that's not full sight, the question becomes, will you let him heal you the rest of the way? Are you going to let him? Will you ask him to open your eyes all the way? How do we do that? You ask him to. Just like the blind man, you submit yourself to his process and ask him for the full healing, which is to say you admit to him 
Like, I'm not actually seeing things all the way here quite yet. People just look like trees around me. I don't think I see the Christian faith quite fully yet, Jesus. I need you to reveal to me who you are in a deeper way. I need you to reveal to me what you did in a deeper way so that I might be able to understand this. You ask him to reveal himself to you that you might be able to see him, the beauty of his person, the beauty of his work. And when you do that, and he does that. In Alpha, we always say, if you're willing to, 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 to open the door to Jesus, he comes in. If you do that, and when he does that, what you discover is he's far more valuable to have than any of the other stuff you might want from him. That's what happens. That's what happens. You, you discover he's so beautiful, so worthwhile, so valuable, that even if you didn't get any of this other stuff, even if you have some of that other stuff that gets taken away from you, you look at him and you say, it's well with my soul. That's okay. I still have the Christ. So beautiful. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Um, he moves beyond this a bit to, to give some more handholds to how to conceive of following him with eyes wide open. You know, if you're, if you're still kind of in that, that gray area of what exactly does this mean and look like? Am I there? Or have my eyes been all the way opened or, or not? He, he gives us some more handholds here in the rest of the passage. Verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. He says, follow me. Follow me. When our eyes have only been partially illuminated to Christ, we initially want Jesus to follow us. That's probably this, uh, a simple way to put it. We, we want him to come up behind us and, and fix our messes. We want him to work to give us things to give us the people or the experiences that we want out of life. And the telltale sign that we've been healed of this spiritual blindness is when we follow him instead. When we give up or when we deny our ambitions, our desires, our priorities, we trade him in for his ambitions, his desires, his priorities. That's the telltale sign that, oh, eyes have been opened. I'm going to give up my ambitions in life, my desires that I want out of this life, my priorities that I have in this life for Jesus's. What are his ambitions with my life? What are his desires with my life? What are his priorities in my life? But this is really the core essence of, of following Jesus. It's not just trotting after a guy. It's reorienting our hearts towards what he wants to accomplish, away from what we want to accomplish out of life. Now, I, I want to give us a little bit, a few handholds here as we think of what it looks like to d deny ourselves or kind of see our trans, like, a transformation of our ambitions and desires then. What does that actually look like? Um, first, uh, kind of two here. First, we need to give up whatever is keeping us on the sidelines from going all in on Jesus' mission. Like, what's keeping us on the sidelines? The parable of the, the rich young ruler comes to mind. Jesus says, Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Then follow me. How crazy. I love this because he didn't say, sell all that you have, give the money to me. We could really use that. Disciples are hungry. Let's go. He says, give it away. I can make bread. Follow me. Some of us have things that we are so, so dear to us that we couldn't let them go. The first step to denying ourselves is really considering that and what would it look like to let go of those things completely? What would it look like to ask Jesus if he might give us a vision of him that outpaces that which we're holding so tightly? That's the first thing. Jesus says, yeah. 
Then the second, we can consider the same principle in the moments of our days. Most practically, what are your ambitions, your hopes, and desires that you were hoping to get out of this church service? Interesting question, right? Now, what are Jesus' ambitions, desires, priorities, hopes that he wants to get out of this church service? You see that? That there's a reorientation towards the desires of Christ. A willingness to, to, to turn one way. Oh, that's right. Living for Christ. My eyes have been opened. See, so we can sometimes just put back on sunglasses or something again where we do kind of lean into the flesh and let the flesh take us into our ambitious desires again. You know? What is that? So you can do that throughout your day. You can do it with, with everything. You can do it with, with the church service, like we just said. You can do it with work. What, are, what do I want to accomplish today at work? What might Christ want to accomplish today at work? You do it with your free time. What, do, what are my desires with my free time? What are Jesus' desires with my free time? You can do it with everything. You see, following Jesus is an ongoing denial of our own ambitions and desires that are still stuck to us, let's admit it. Like, they're still there. They're still there. Following Jesus is a denial of those as we walk it out in life. And we think, wow, that sounds kind of terrible. If I'm really going to prioritize Jesus in every kind of moment of my life, that means I'm going to suffer a little bit in life. I might suffer a lot a bit. Exactly. That's exactly what Peter thought after Jesus told them where the ministry of this Messiah was going. Peter's like, I'm excited to rule with Christ. Jesus is like, hey, we're going to suffer, actually. Ooh, that's a reorientation, don't you think? The ministry of the Messiah through his people isn't one of reigning, isn't one of ruling, it's one of suffering. This is throughout the New Testament, actually, and it's a faithful theology throughout the pages of the Old Testament as well. But there's this faithful witness to the fact that, that following the Messiah means suffering. Um, Paul brings it up in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, um, like this. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. He says, my eyes are wide open. More than all that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. My previous ambitions, desires, qualifications, the life I built for myself. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that's through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, or fellowship has this word sharing. In the Greek, the primary force is sharing and the sharing of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So back up to verse 10 again. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. When does that happen? Go to verse 11. I'll somehow reach it from among the dead later. Now is suffering. Oh man, that's not to say there's not bright points. This is a hard sell for Christianity, isn't it? When you have your, true, your eyes truly and fully open to, to Christ, suffering, hardship, difficulty, at the beginning of Corinthians, Paul talks about it in the same way. He's talking about not only in the course of his own life again, but he normalizes it for all Christians. This is the way of Christ. There, thankfully, he says, and in your suffering, the comforts of Christ, they saddle right up next to him. Christ is there in the midst of it. Now back to our passage. There's something very interesting in how Jesus phrased this following. He says, if anybody's to follow him, they're to do three things. Deny themselves, pick up their cross, which is essentially to the point of death. And then thirdly, follow me. If anyone is to follow me, follow me. <laughs> very emphatic, very redundant. But there's something here. 
There's something here. here. Follow me. If anyone wants to follow me, then follow me. It's not enough just to give up things. It's not enough just to sacrifice things. It's not enough just to take all that which is dear to you and sell it to the poor. Follow me. In the Gospel of John, we're going to see this at the Last Supper. Jesus talks about abiding in him. Stay connected to me. Otherwise, you're not going to know exactly how to reorient in the moment from your desires to my desires. If you're not connected to me, you can just give up your own desires and not fully participate in mine. I lived here way too long. Just live like a monk? None of the joy. It's miserable. We have to stay connected to Jesus in order to gain the, gain the sight of what he wants to do in us and through us to orient him, us to his mission. Otherwise, we're just giving up stuff. This isn't just blind asceticism or, or a monk life. This is a relationship that orients us and directs us throughout our lives. Now, in this final passage, Jesus lays down the gauntlet a bit, doesn't he? He, he does. He's actually not saying, follow me um, because I'm the most worthwhile thing to follow in this life. He is, like, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, follow me because if you don't, you're not going to have access to everlasting life. Whew. We don't just follow him <laughs> because when we perceive him, we see he's the most valuable thing, but because we have considered with our eternal bodies in mind our eternal state of things. This is why Jesus says follow. Not I'm going to give you a bunch of great stuff now so it's going to be good. He's saying it's coming. It's coming. In this present life though, if you're ashamed of me in my suffering way, if you want to pursue your own ambitions and desires and glory over mine, even with your eyes halfway open, I'll be ashamed of you when I come back to judge. Uh, The early church had a saying that they would say that captures this point it probably pulled it from uh, several of the Gospels, pulled from this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, they pulled it together in a saying, or maybe it was even a hymn. It comes from Second Timothy. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, I think. It says this. This is Paul talking again. This is why I endure, or I suffer, all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. So he has eternal life in mind, and then he says this, this saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. See that that whole notion of denying is right there. And, and there's that line in there that says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, you could read that as, even though I, I might falter and, and not be completely perfect, like Christ is still going to faithfully save me. And that's true, but that's not the thrust of the hymn here, of, of, of the poetry that's here. The poetry is two positive conditional lines, and then it goes to negative conditional lines, and then a conclusion that refers to both of them. He cannot deny himself. That's the conclusion. It's talking about something far greater than the forgiveness of sin here. It's referencing the difference between followers of Jesus who see men as trees walking and followers of Jesus who are following him with their eyes wide open. Those who faithfully die and endure with Christ will live and rule with Christ, while those who deny Christ and are faithless will be denied by him. Why? Because he can't deny himself. So when your eyes are fully open and you reorient your ambitions, it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't even feel like you're doing it. That's because you've become united to who Jesus is. You become part of his body, part of his family. And so at the end of the time, Jesus can't look at you and say, that's not me. He says, oh, yep, that's, he can't deny himself. <laughs> oh, that's part of me. Welcome into eternal life. The other part of this is also true. He can't deny himself. He can't look at someone who has, has not had their eyes fully open to him, who has not reoriented their ambitions and desires towards him. And he can't look at them and say, that's part of me. It would be to deny who he really is. That's why we're left in the sufferings, fulfilling the sufferings of him. Now, I'm not here today because this is a message that we relish to give. 
This is, not, this is not a message that is easy to give. This is a message that we suffer to give. Friends, we know this, this message is unpopular. We know this message that invites people to suffer, this message that invites people to deny themselves, this message that prioritizes death over life is, is nonsense. And, and when you really consider it with a logical and rational mind, there's no way it can actually work. Like, it's not an easy message to give. We know it's a message that divides, that turns people against us, even, even while we make the invitation of, you too can participate and have life, even now, but then one day in the future in the full. This is just the Messiah and his work, and this is just what he did, and this is what he's invited us to do, is to, to fulfill what's left in his sufferings. So this isn't, this isn't like a hobby horse. Of, I, I don't relish or like love giving this message of, are you really a Christian? Like, don't hear that from, from us today. Also, don't hear me say that the Christian life is just all down in the doldrums either. There's joy, incredible joy, and peace, and, and love, and all sorts of incredible richness of, of riches of Christ on display that will be unleashed in your life that will produce incredible times of joy and love and, and maybe even like thrill in this life. But they are far less material than you hope they are. But the good news is that the eternal blessings are also far more concrete than you think those are. That's the ultimate trade-off here. This is Jesus asking us to consider with our eternal bodies in mind. That's more concrete than the fleeting things of here, where we're trying to grasp at things, grasp at money and it falls through our fingertips, grasp at power and it falls through our fingertips, grasp at image and it escapes us. You actually can't have the physical blessings you want in this life. Why pursue them, Jesus says? I have real things for you. Real things for you. While it's full of hardships and sufferings now, there's joy now and joy everlasting in the future. So so would you consider asking Jesus to fully open your eyes with me today? Would you celebrate the fact that he's done that if, if that's you with me today as the band comes back up here to lead us in worship? May we truly ask Jesus to heal our sight. Let's pray.